0: all right everybody you can have a seat welcome to providence community church uh before we get started i want to acknowledge uh this on my face right now okay uh my wife and i amen uh my wife and i are adopting from india and so we did a fundraiser uh yesterday and if we raised enough money i was going to do this and so i did so uh it's a celebration and a win for us all right but either way try to focus okay it's good to have you guys here um and uh, here at Providence, we are a people um, that are formed around a single and compelling vision, that is to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in our city. Uh, so, to that end, every single Sunday, we open up our Bibles because we believe this Word contains everything that we need to know, worship, and obey Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, we've been in a sermon series called "Kingdom and King." Uh, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, preached by Jesus in Matthew's uh, five through seven. Uh, and so if you want to turn to Matthew 7 with me starting uh, in verse 12 so Matthew chapter 7 verse 12 that's where our text is going to be found uh, if you don't have a bible with you this morning we do have some in the seat pockets in front of you in some of the rows there uh, you can also grab that one and turn to page 812 that's where our text is going to be um, and if you have a bible you can just return that after service if you do not you can keep that as a gift from us we would love for you to have Uh, that Bible so uh, as you continue to turn there if you're able with me uh, this morning if you could stand for the reading of God's word um, we're going to read together here so Matthew chapter 7 starting in verse 12 okay hear the word of the Lord so whatever you wish that others would do to you do also to them for this is the law and the prophets enter by the narrow gate For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. I want to welcome you here. My name is Court, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, I want to say thanks so much for joining us Um, We're glad that you guys made us a part of your week, and um, if you do not have a a home church or you don't call Providence home, we'd love for you to consider making us your home church. We had a new members class uh, just yesterday morning, and that went really great. We have those periodically. Uh, One of the ways that you can kind of get connected here at Providence is uh, is to fill out one of those connect cards that should be in the seat back in front of you. And uh, I always try to say that at the beginning of the gathering so that in case it takes you a little while or you forget later, you can go ahead and grab that and just let us know that you were here. Um, like Eric said, uh, we have been in a sermon series called Kingdom and King, and we've been walking through uh, the book of Matthew, chapters number 5 through 7, and that's basically the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been here since the beginning of the year. We're coming to the, to the back end of that, and uh, I just wanted to make mention of a couple things coming up. Number one is Easter Sunday's coming up. And so we're excited about that. Um, if, if you um, haven't been here at Providence for Easter Sunday, it's a big deal. It's obviously at the, it's the height of the church calendar. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, and we're going to be uh, celebrating baptisms as well. And so we would love for you to invite your friends, invite your family, invite people that you have been uh, sharing the gospel with or trying to share the gospel with. Easter's a great time for you to invite them to church, so I'd love for you to consider that. And then a second thing that's coming up is uh, the mystery of marriage uh, seminar. We're doing, we're doing a, a Saturday seminar trying to... Sound like I'm in like a tunnel? Yes. Sorry, Colt, you got this? You working on it? I see like just a silhouette of you. Um, yeah, so we're doing like a Saturday seminar uh, trying to uh, discuss the mystery of marriage, how the gospel reflects uh, marriage and vice versa, really the, that marriage is meant to reflect the gospel. And so we'd love for you to sign up for that. I know there's going to be details later on, uh, and we're going to be having a guest speaker come in, a friend of mine uh, named Casey Sees is going to come in, and he's going to be speaking at that. So I think we have like 30 slots available, and like half of them are filled. So go for it, okay? Make, it's like Hunger Games, all right? Go get it. Make it happen. All right. So, Matthew chapter number 7, uh, let's go ahead and jump in. So, Jesus is saying something here, I think, and this is a really, it's a familiar text, right, uh, for most of us. If you, if you grew up at all in the Bible Belt, or really just generally you went to kindergarten, you probably were told this, all right? That the way in which you should live is to treat others in the same way that you would want to be treated, okay? This is a, a very familiar text, and as I was preparing for it, I was thinking, growing up, there's like things that you prefer, And then there's like universal truths, and all of us have these, right? So there's like things that we prefer. Uh, Like for instance, as I was growing up, uh, I liked uh, when I was little fun dip. Do you guys remember fun dip? Everybody, right? It's the worst idea. Now that I'm a parent, I'm like, how did we eat that? And our parents were like, yeah, that's a good idea. But that I loved fun dip. If you don't know what fun dip is, fun dip is a is a candy stick. That is. There's two of them that come in a a paper pouch, you rip open that paper pouch, and then you dip this candy stick in sugar, and that's all that it is. There is nothing healthy or at all nutritional about this snack, and then basically when you lick this sugar off your nasty saliva, you put it back in the Fun Dip, and all the sugar attaches to that candy stick. And basically you just walk around eating that all day long, all right, and, you, and all the, you know who was eating Fun Dip at the ballpark or whatever because they had like this crusty, nasty, sticky, like almost Joker mask that they had on their face. And I remember growing up, I loved Fun Dip. I ate that like, you know, it was a problem. Um, and and that, that was a pr- personal preference for me. I think most kids probably like that, but that was, that, that was something that I liked. Uh, also, you, when you're growing up, you, you learn what your preferences are with a number of things, right? So it's not just food, it's probably clothing right? It's so like growing up in the 90s, you probably like baggy pants. Remember Jinkos? That was a thing. Uh, if you grew up, if you're a little older in the room, you're like, I have no idea what that is, all right? Or if you're a little younger in the room, you might, it might go totally over your head. Just as a side note, one time I preached to students and I made a joke about MC Hammer and it went over everybody's head. <laughs> I was like, I said that, uh, I said something about being too legit to quit. Nothing, just <laughs> silence. I was like, oh man, this is discouraging. So I just moved right on. When you're growing up, you get, like, preferences for clothing, right? Like, I, I know what I like, and usually that changes. Hopefully that changes. I look at pictures of myself in high school, and I'm just like, why was that the choice of the day, and why did no one stop me, right? But those become personal preferences. Uh, your hobbies, like, you, you kind of feel your way out, like junior high. You're going get, you get to try out for the band. You realize maybe I'm just not, you know, cut out for clarinet, Um, Or you try out for football or basketball or, you know, choir, and you realize you can't sing. Like, I remember I was in the choir in third grade, and I thought that might be for me. And then I realized that everyone's in the choir in third grade, like, because everyone pretty much has a similar, like, not very good voice in third grade. And then later on, you realize, like, I don't belong whenever you have real singers, right? And so these become, like, your personal preferences where you just kind of feel your way out. What do I like? What do I not like? Then there's universal truth. These are things that, it doesn't matter if you prefer them, they just are what they are. And these are things like gravity, right? Gravity is something that it doesn't matter if you, if you believe it to be true or, or you don't believe it to be true. If you jump off of the roof, it is true. And you will find out that it is true, right? Gravity is a universal truth. The heat of the sun, like the sun does not mind if you think that it's hotter or it, it is not. It is what it is. These are universal truths. Jesus here is not giving us uh, personal preference. He's giving us universal truth. And I want to make a case that it's universal truth. And I also want to make another leap and say that there's few, if any, of us that read what Jesus says here and disagree with him, at least at a theoretical level. That at bare minimum, we read this and we all say, yeah, I think that's a life that I would want to live. Or B, that's a life that I I would love to live in a world where everyone lived like that. So I want to make the case that that is true. This is universally true. And then I want to take another step and say, but then why is it universally true, but pretty much universally unapplied? There's a reason, but universally not applied. And then lastly, what what answer does the Bible give us for how we could potentially fulfill this commandment by faith? So those are the three things I want to do this morning. And uh, and what I'd like to do to kick us off is just pray and ask the Spirit to do the work that, that you and I can't do. So if you guys will, bow your heads with me. Let me pray and ask God to help us. Father, we, we confess to you that your word is true, but we also confess to you, Lord, that apart from the help of your Holy Spirit, we cannot apply your word in a way that is meaningful, helpful, or edifying to each other or glorifying to you. Jesus, we need your help this morning, both to open the eyes of our hearts to your word, to convict us of sin, but also, Lord, to bring the comfort of life that comes from your blood. And so we ask that you would, Lord, would you do all of those things? And and Lord, where we need to be challenged, God, challenge us. Where we need to be convicted, Lord, let us be convicted. But God, where we need to be comforted, where we need help, where we need healing, we ask, God, that you would provide it and that you would do so through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, for, for seven years now, Providence, we have been saying that we want to be shaped by the great commandment. We say it at the end of our gatherings, Go now, share the love of God that's been shown to you in the gospel. Love God and love people, and that we want to be shaped by this. That Matthew chapter 22, Jesus gives us and says that the, the whole law and the prophets can be summed up in those two things. Well, here, this text is a mirror to that, where Jesus says that if we were to do unto others as you would have them do unto us, that In that is the law and the prophets. He's giving great commentary here on what it means to love our neighbor. Now, what I want to do is define this a little more deeply because I think there's some things here that are different from what we learned in kindergarten, that are a little bit different from maybe... Uh, if you've seen you know, poster boards, like I remember I think I was on a subway in New York City and I saw a, a poster board that pretty much had this scripture on it, you know, just kind of on the side of the wall. And, and I think that there is a difference between what Jesus is saying here and, and, and conventional wisdom and knowledge. And I want to kind of define more what Jesus is saying as he talks about our love. So three major things that we see in this text that are maybe different than what you grew up hearing. Number one, this command is not reactive but proactive this command is not reactive, but it's proactive. Jesus says, do unto others, not don't do unto others. So Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't do bad. Okay. So this is like many of the 10 commandments, right? Like you should not kill. That's still a true statement. We need to, we need to agree with that. Okay. Uh, And it's not necessarily bad to define things by negatives. Like you do this as a parent all the time, don't you? Don't do that. Okay. Okay. But this is a little bit different. Jesus is actually going on a step further, and he's not only saying that we shouldn't be doing evil things to our neighbors, but that we should be proactively doing good unto people. Now that's different, isn't it? Like he's asking us to take an extra step, and he's not asking, he's commanding it. Jesus is telling us that we should be looking for opportunities to do good to others, not merely avoiding the bad things that we want to do to people when they cut us off on the road, which we can agree that we want to do bad things to them. Okay, it's already been conjured in your heart, all right? And we already talked about this, like anger started in the heart when you got cut off, all right? You didn't have to kill them for you to be angry at them, all right? And Jesus is saying that we need to be proactively looking for opportunities to do this kind of good and that this has always been the heart of God. That when you look back at the Old Testament, you'll see that God is inviting us into life through walking in his goodness in a broken and fallen world around us. That's what he was doing with the children of Israel in the Old Testament, and now Jesus is coming in and saying, we need to be those kind of people. So pull yourself into the Sermon on the Mount again. King Jesus is saying, citizens of my kingdom actively look to do good to people. They don't only try not to do bad to people. Make sense? Like we're defining ourselves not only by what we don't do, but by what God is calling us to do proactively. Number two, this command is abundant. This command is abundant. Whatever you would have someone do unto you, not the few things that you've decided that you're good at, right? So Jesus didn't say we should cherry pick a few things that we like when people do these things for or to us, and then we're just going to focus on those things. No, Jesus says anything, whatever that you would love to be done to or for you, you should be proactively looking to do that for and to other people. Well, that's even wider, even broader, right? Jesus is saying here that living under his kingdom reign and rule looks like a body of people that are constantly looking for opportunities to use their times, their talent, and their treasures to do the same kind of good to others that they would truly desire in their soul for themselves, and that includes a litany, a long list of things that we cannot put a number on. That every day you're going to be faced with new opportunities to do good to people, In unique ways and Jesus is saying that we should not sit back and wait until someone does good to us But that we should actively seek that for them. And then lastly this command is all-inclusive This command is all-inclusive. So Jesus says here whatever that you would Have others do to you you should do for them He doesn't say that we should only do these things to our friends. He uses the junk drawer term others so he doesn't just say friends and family, right? And, and that's quite a, kind of more of a tribal, maybe more familiar to us, right? It's more familiar to us to say, like I grew up and my, my father told my brother and I that we're, you know, blood is thicker than water, you always take up for your brother. Anybody else grow grew up in a family like that? That was my family. And so because of that, it led to a lot of unhealthy things. My brother was six years older than me and my brother had to take me everywhere he went. That was my dad's rule. So the first time I ever attended a high school party, I was 10. That is no joke, okay? And I can go on and on. I won't because we're being podcasted. The things that I saw at a very young age were because my dad's rules were: you take court with you, and my brother be like, "Why do I have to take?" Because he's your brother. So I get drugged along, you know. And I learned like I, I'm everything that I learned to be preferences for me are about a, a generation earlier because of my brother. And so I ended up befriending his friends. I, ended, I still to this day, are friend, I have many friends that are really my brother's friends because I was always with them. And, and a lot of that was built around this idea for my father that blood is thicker than water. You do good to your family no matter what. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with saying that we need to look out for our family. But Jesus here says, not only does he apply the family of God being everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, that's another step. But then Jesus here is saying that we even are called to do good to our enemies. Like we're even called to be proactively doing good to the people who actually persecute and hate us. Jesus modeled this on the cross as people were spitting at him, mocking him and jeering him, and Jesus says, forgive them Lord, they know not what they do. Extending love to the people, the very people, who refuse to extend him that same kind of love and care. That is what Jesus is calling us to here. Now, on one hand, when we read that, we're probably like, well, that's that's heavy. But pull yourself, remember, we're just starting with theory, right? So in theory, if you were to step back a little bit, don't you agree that if we lived in a world where everyone applied that, that that the world would be much better? I think in theory, we can all agree, right? In theory, we'd be like, yes. If everyone applied this, you'd have this world of interconnected people looking out for one another, loving one another, caring one another, being selfless, all of these things. I challenge you to think of a reason why you wouldn't want to live in a world like this, and I imagine that you can't. However, I'll give you many examples, and I'm just going to choose one example because I think it's culturally relevant, and I know that it may be even culturally sensitive, but I think that it's really important that the church is prophetic and actually speaks into an issue like this. A perfect example of how this is not applied in our everyday culture, and even in Christian culture, is on the issue of abortion. And I want to say this before I even get into this. If you have had an abortion and you're here with us this morning, I want to say you're in the best place possible, and here's why. Not because I'm not going to tell you the truth about abortion and the horrors of it, but because I'm going to tell you that you've joined now with a bunch of people who also are sinful and broken and need Jesus as Savior, and you're welcome here. And so we're so glad that you're here because we're just going to join you at the foot of the cross and say thank God that he sent his son Jesus for sinners like you and me. And so you need to know that you're loved and welcomed here. And what I'm about to say is not not aimed at you for condemnation, but instead just conviction that leads to life. But here's the thing. If we stay silent and say things like uh, we don't tell the the truth about abortion, then in the end the church is silencing a prophetic voice I think we need to be speaking into. And here's what I'll say about abortion. Is that abortion is a perfect example of not doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And even the most marginalized and weak among us, we're killing. So we're taking children, right? Which children are meant to be protected. Children are meant to be guarded because they can't guard themselves. They're meant to be cared for. We're meant to do everything we can. Don't we do this for our own children? Like right now, as I stand here, we have hired a security guard here at Providence Community Church, not because I believe that I'm some celebrity that's going to get shot, okay? I, we did that for one reason and one reason alone, our kids. Because we live in a crazy world where crazy people who are broken and sinful do crazy things and you've seen it on the news, and here's what we want to do. We want to do everything that we can practically to protect our kids. Ultimately, under the sovereignty of God, we don't have all control, right? But we can do certain things. We have a security guard here. We also set up ushers that stand in front of our children's ministry, why? To protect the the kids as a second line of defense. Also, there are particular people, Now I know this might scare some of you, but it's important because we know who they are, and it's good. There are particular people that might be sitting next to you that have concealed handguns. You're probably like, oh my God, where am I? You're in Texas, okay? (laughs) And I'm just going to be frank with you. We're totally cool with that if we know who these people are, and here's why. Because we want to protect not only you guys, but particularly our children. And why are we so adamant about our kids? Because they can't protect themselves. Because they don't have the ability to to stand up to hate and violence and all of these evils that are coming after them. So what do we do? We do everything we can to protect them. And then when children are in the womb, we just say that's unnecessary. But, but what we're doing is we're applying to the children what we would want, right? The children right back there, we're applying what we would hope people would do for us when we were kids. That when we couldn't protect ourselves, someone would come along and protect us. And so we're applying the golden rule, except whenever child's in the womb, we say, never mind, I don't want to apply that rule anymore, because why? Because convenience trumps the golden rule, Right? And ultimately, our own autonomy, our own selfishness, our own decision-making ends up getting in the way of the golden rule. Which brings me to my second point. Even though we all, in theory, agree that this is good, there are, there are little tipping points or little moments where we're confronted in our lives where we're willing to abandon the golden rule because it's inconvenient. Or maybe that's a euphemism. It's not just inconvenient. It runs directly contrary to our own self-autonomous idea of life. Which is why Jesus starts with saying this is the golden rule, and then he starts talking about two different ways, right? So he says, here's all the law and the prophets. If we were to live this way, this is how citizens of my kingdom would live. And then he immediately goes into what seems to be utterly disconnected. There's a theme here, right? It seems to be utterly disconnected from his thought, but it's not. He says, enter the narrow gate. And he gives you these two competing ways of life and he encourages you, he invites you into choosing this way and not this way. And this begins from here to the end of the chapter, in chapter number seven, where Jesus is consistently just giving you these two different ways. He's going to say there's two different ways. Here's two different kinds of false teachers and true teachers. Here's two different kinds of religious, pe- or religious people and gospel people who live their lives being obedient in two different ways. And then lastly, there's two different builders. One builds his house on the rock, one on the sand. You're going to get this to the end of chapter number seven. So, Jesus says this He says, listen, enter through the narrow gate because the way is easy and the gate is wide that leads to destruction. But if you enter through the narrow gate, the way is going to be difficult. He doesn't say that the way of the Christian or the way of the citizen of the kingdom is going to be generally hard. He says it's going to be particularly hard because you're a Christian. And I think this is important. Listen and hear me on this. Life is hard because we live in a fallen world and it's generally hard. It's generally hard on every single human being. If you take breath in your lungs, it's gonna be difficult for you. And, and Jesus makes this abundantly clear. He's saying here that if you try to walk in the narrow way or through the narrow gate on the difficult path that follows Jesus, it's gonna be particularly harder for you because of a few factors. Here's a few of those factors. Number one, Because the very world system that we live in works against that narrow way, right? Because of the sinful fallen world we live in. so It's going to be difficult. Number two, there are spiritual forces of darkness that hate you, hate your soul, and all those things are true. Number three, when you try, check this out, this might resonate with you. When you try to apply, let's say, the golden rule, and then you live in a world that doesn't apply the golden rule, what's your first inclination? I'm done with this, Right? I'm going to try to proactively do good to someone, and what are they going to proactively do? Look out for themselves. So at some point, the older that you get, the more common it is for people to throw in the towel and say, I'm not going to keep spinning my wheels doing something that no one in the world is actually reciprocating. Anybody ever been there or felt that way? Many of us, we self-righteously say this in our own marriages, right? It's like, I'm not going to keep loving him if he doesn't love me, at least not the way I want to be loved, right? And this is a few factors that make it difficult to follow Jesus. But here's what I wanna say. Jesus is going to teach us here that the number one factor that makes it hard to follow Christ and makes it more difficult than the generally difficult way of the world is that our own sin is in the way. Our own sin gets in the way of following the way of Jesus and that is the greatest obstacle that we have. To use an analogy, just got back. My, my wife and I, t- I took like a couple of days. My wife was there for, for a full week. But uh, uh, ski trip, spring break ski trip. Anybody ever been skiing? All right. It's terrible. Um, <laughs> the worst. All right. Anyway, skiing is a perfect example. In one way, uh, let's, let's use the idea of skiing if you're not talented. Let's say sledding. If you're sledding, there's a possibility that you will fall because the mountain itself is treacherous, right? You could fall off of your sled or your tube or whatever just because you hit a rock that's in the middle of the mountain and that's very plausible. But for the most part, gravity itself and the very flow of the mountain is just bringing you down and all you do is sit. And this is what it means to live our lives completely autonomous apart from God. Everything is going downhill, and you don't really have to do much. Here's the thing. You might fall off just because the very world you live in is treacherous, and it might hurt. But overwhelmingly, you don't have to do a lot of work to slide completely down. And Jesus says the only bad news is that when you get to the bottom of the mountain, destruction's waiting. So it's like fun, and the wind's going by your hair, and you're like, oh, we're having a great time, and you're headed to death. That's what Jesus says. He says it's easy the path is wide, there's no one stopping you, there's no you know, signs, there's no officers on the way saying don't do this, go up to the top, nothing. It's just a clear path all the way down and even if you tumble, people will help you right back onto the tube and you'll end up at the bottom. And then Jesus gives the opposite way. He says, following me is like mountain climbing. Anybody done that? I took a group of interns like I think five or six years, oh, longer than that, 10 years, oh my gosh. Group of guys up into the mountains and we did climbing, you get like climbing shoes. And I remember uh, a lot of them, no no training, okay, no planning, no preparation. It's two degrees. And we went to Estes Park in Colorado, and we began, like, doing this climb. And we're, we're climbing, and I remember looking back, and you get this, like, immediately these two groups form. Eric Ripley was with me, so you guys see Eric, pretty fit. The mustache needs to go, but he's pretty fit. He's leading a group, you know, uh, up here, and then we got the laggards behind that are just screaming at us, Way! and then you see him. like, we, we ended up getting up to the top of this mountain, and I look down, and there's a whole other group of schlubs that have just decided to wait on us down there. They're laying there. We get up to the top of the mountain, I pull, off, I pull up the, uh, out my bag, I'm thirsty, right? So I pull out my water bottle, well, guess what I didn't think of? You're in two degrees, so it's just Ice. I'm like, oh man, I'm thirsty, this is bad. You know, like, trying to warm it, you know, like you're doing some, like, makeshift caveman stuff to try to get this stuff to melt, all right? And then I'm like, okay, fine, well, I'll just eat, you know, I need some sort of sustenance. So I reach into my bag, pull out my peanut butter and, you know, jelly sandwich, where I guess what's frozen also? The jelly, just hard as a rock, all right? It's like my freezer, or worse. And so we're up at the top of this mountain, and I'm just like, we did not prepare for this. This is terrible. And then I pull off my beanie, I touch my hair, my hair's frozen, sweat frozen to my head. Everybody's heads are steaming. Jesus says that's the walk in the way of Christ. This uphill, arduous battle you didn't prepare for, you don't have the tools for it, you show up and you're like, why did I start doing this? He said that's the way. Now here's the thing, the only thing Jesus tells us that is encouraging here is this, one leads to destruction and one leads to life. That's the only encouragement he gives. He doesn't say, don't worry, it's going to be easier. Don't worry, I'm going to swoop in all the time on a cape. He just says, tough, arduous, leads to life. Easy, wind blowing in your hair, leads to destruction. And yet he he gives us this analogy right on the heels of telling us about loving our neighbor. So I want to return to that and say, why are these two thoughts connected? Okay. Okay. Well, let's think here for a second. People rarely disagree with the goodness of the way of Jesus in theory. Example, Jesus loved people perfectly. Wouldn't you want to live in a world where we all loved each other perfectly? Jesus healed the sick. Wouldn't it be great if all of us walked around with that kind of care for people who were hurting? Jesus valued and cared for the marginalized, the oppressed, the poor. Look at Jesus' ministry. He spent time with people. He was not trying to build his influential followers on Twitter. He was actually spending most time with people that no one knew. He cared for the least of these. Jesus had a deep spiritual life that was connected with God the Father in a way that we have never experienced. Wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world like that, if that was true of us, right? Jesus did not live a life craving approval from people. In fact, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You... No one can trust your word because you get approval and glory from people, but I only get my glory from the Father so you can trust that what I tell you is true. Jesus always was fair. He was always honest. He was always humble. He was always gentle. He was always honorable in every way. He cared about his family and friends. Jesus' life was perfect. He loved and prayed for even his enemies. He gave his life for those who hated him. This is Jesus' way, and then he encourages us to say, and we are called to live in this way. And yet there always comes a time for all of us where we are tempted to give up on this way because it's difficult. And I will say that the reason comes back to two different ways that are offered to us. The authority of Christ on the way of Jesus will inevitably collide with one of two things in your life. Inevitably, And if you've been a Christian for a while, you're going to immediately resonate with this. Number one, a firmly and strongly held belief in your heart. Or B, a firmly and strongly rooted behavioral pattern that has become comfortable to you. Let me read those two again. When you walk in the way of Jesus, there will be two things that the authority of Christ will collide with. Number one, a firmly and strongly held belief that's in your heart. Or number two, a firmly and strongly rooted behavioral pattern that has now become comfortable or habitual to you that you don't want to give up. And here's what I need you to know. Those two are usually connected in tandem in a way you don't understand. That both of those things are usually present, you just don't know. One of them is obviously more common for, to your mind. The reason that I chose to use the example of abortion is not only because I think the church needs to speak into it, but because I think that very simply, it's, it's something that's now a firmly held belief in people's minds one way or another. And because it becomes this firmly held belief that's been attached to this idea of, well, if I, if I ever say anything negatively about this, then it must mean that I hate a person, that we are tempted to then reject the authority of Christ and basically just usurp our own authority on an issue that's pretty black and white. But that's not the only one. There are many in our everyday lives, personal cravings that can be carnal, right, and they become behavioral patterns. It's so like things that you know in your heart of hearts, the Bible's pretty clear on, but you notice that, you know what, I actually just kind of like this. Dreams and aspirations for your life that the authority of Jesus collides with. And now you have to decide, which way will I choose? Relationships that you either have or, hey, check this out, or how you're supposed to engage in the relationships that you have that you just don't want to engage that way, Right? So Jesus tells you you start to love proactively your enemies, but you got this like long-term enemy in your family that you just don't want to engage, and so bam, it collides with a firmly rooted behavioral pattern that's really rooted in a firmly held belief in your heart, and you're saying, yeah, of course I'm supposed to forgive, but you don't know what they did to me, and now you got to decide which way you're going to choose. I can go on and on, right? It collides with our status socially. If I decide to walk in the way of Jesus, this will potentially derail me in my status socially and where I'm headed in my job or my career. Security and control. So ultimately now the authority of Christ is colliding with my need for security in life and my need for control over my life and now I have to decide which way will I choose. Because actively pursuing the good of others and the glory of God will eventually create a tension in your soul because it will confront your selfish sinful tendencies and you're going to be tempted to create reasons why you disagree with God. And here's what I want to encourage you with, is when that inevitably comes, not if, okay? If you're sitting here and you're like, no, never have that moment. (laughs) Just never for me, I just always trust God. Well, here's what I want to do. I want to say, and and seriously, because I know that might be here, you're like, I just never have that struggle. And I want to say, bless you, okay? Here's what I do want to encourage you with, though. Inevitably, there is going to be these dark nights of the soul for you, so please listen up. I would say many times it happens through suffering when you just don't understand why things are going the way that they're going. So I want to tell you that when that comes, please listen to what we're going to talk about here because it will come. If you're a Christian in the room or you're a believer, or you're just kind of checking it out and you're saying, you know what? I'm always there. Talk to me. Well, listen, okay? Because I think that Jesus here is not just being harsh on us. He is not browbeating you here. He's actually inviting you into real life. Which brings me to my third and final point you cannot apply the golden rule apart from Jesus. There are two major, major stanzas. One is just a single word, and and the other one is a stanza of words in the golden rule that if you pull them out, you cannot understand or ever apply it as a human being. And here's what they are. First, verse 12 starts with this little two-letter word, so sow whatever you wish now so is giving us an indication that what Jesus is commanding or his imperative is built upon something that he just said previously which is a truth that's supposed to give power to do it does this make sense an example to this might be Jonas that's my son Jonas <laughs> I'm going to give him a command right Here is a broom. I'm giving you this broom. It's got bristles. so I want you to go and sweep the porch. If, If you just totally take away the broom and you just say, go sweep the porch, my son will be out there with his fingers doing this, and he will, this is what he does, and he'll be trying to do it with his hands. Now here's the thing, good intentions, he's not gonna finish the job and it's not gonna look the way that we want it to look. How important is it that we hear, here's the broom, son, I'm providing you the broom. This is the, the tool in which you need in order to accomplish the sweeping of the porch. It's an, it's an, there's no way to calculate how important it is to remember the first. So what does Jesus say right before this? I just want to read to you the stanza that Eric preached last week. Verse number seven in Matthew chapter seven: Ask and it will be given to you; seek and you will find; knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? A serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things? to those who ask him. Let me rephrase this. Jesus says in, cha- in chapter seven, verse 12, because and on the basis of your spiritual adoption in Christ, because you're a child of God who has been bought by the precious blood of Jesus, you've been welcomed into his family, on the basis of that power alone that you have a father who hears your prayers, a father who will empower you, a father who will care for you, a father who will take away your fear, guilt, and shame when you fail. On that basis, go and love people. Go and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you don't have the former, you cannot have the latter. It is impossible. How can we deal with the overwhelming fear, guilt, and shame that comes from our failures and continue trying to love people if we don't have the cross of Christ? If we don't have the love of the Father? How about this? How can you deal with the overwhelming disappointment that comes when you care for other people in a way that they don't care for you if you don't have a loving Father who cares for you abundantly? I'll tell you, friends, you can't. Because ultimately we'll be drawing from a well that runs dry, which is our own. And then lastly, Jesus says in verse number 12, for this is the law and the prophets. What is he saying? I love this because this would have really frustrated the Pharisees. Jesus is saying, and I'm going to make this very short, my words, my red letter words, he's putting them on par with the authority of the Old Testament. When I speak, God speaks. What I'm saying is God saying it. My commands are God's commands. So let's, let's summarize what Jesus just said here. There are two ways of living one way of living is under your own authority by your own power and the way ultimately leads to destruction. Jesus says it's easy to walk this way. You're born walking this way. When you were crawling around in your mother's, uh, your mother's room or in your crib, you were already doing your own thing. If you're a parent, you already know this. Your kids do what they want. <laughs> you're like, I want them to sleep. They don't want to sleep. I want them to just eat their food. They don't want to eat their own food. I want them just to listen to me. They don't want to listen to you. Wait till they become teenagers, then it's worse, right? And until God miraculously reaches in to their hearts, to take a rebel heart and turn it into a submissive heart that loves Jesus and trusts Jesus, our role is continually to pointing them back to Christ and really praying and asking God to do a miraculous work, right? So Jesus says that's one way, that we're just born that way and we're headed down the mountain. But there's a second way. And Jesus says, here's the second way, by the power that is given to us in the Gospel alone. When we're welcomed into the family of God, loved by God. Hear me on this, again, if you have found yourself here and you feel the weight of sinful condemnation, Jesus is the way in which that weight is taken off of our shoulders. Cleanses us from sin, cleanses us from unrighteousness, cleanses us from our own autonomy, causes us to be a child that on that basis through that power we can come before our father and ask for help ask for courage ask for boldness ask for grace ask for patience and check this out when we ask for it he's not going to give us a servant when we ask for it he's not going to say oh yeah right here because why he's a better father than you and I and so the second way is by the power that's in the gospel, under the authority of Christ, we do unto others as, they would, as we would have them do to us. Tim Keller has a couple of quotes on this that I wanted to read that I found really helpful when I was thinking of this. The first one says this. This is the humbling truth that lies at the heart of Christianity. Christianity. We love to be our own saviors. Our hearts love to manufacture glory for themselves. So we find messages of self-salvation extremely attractive. Listen to this clearly. Whether they're religious, keep these rules and you earn eternal blessing. Or whether they're secular, grab a hold of these things and you'll experience blessings now. So I love what he's saying here. Tim Keller's saying, listen, religion, irreligion, really of the same fold that ultimately it's a self-salvation technique, and that's where we're kind of bent towards. But Watch what he goes on to say. Jesus does not divide the world into moral good guys and the immoral bad guys. He shows us that everyone is dedicated to a project of self-salvation, to using God and others in order to get power and control for themselves. We are just going about it in different ways. So when Jesus talks about the two different ways here, he's not saying good guys and bad guys. He's saying those who have been rescued by the grace of God, by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, and then the rest of the world who in a myriad of different ways creates a ton of different devices. And we all do this. It's all of our bends, And even when we're going on this way, there's a temptation for us just to jump on the tube and go down with everybody else. And then God in his grace rips us back and sends us back up the mountain again. And we say things like, I'm ill-equipped. I don't have any water and he says I'm a good father would you just get get up the hill and then when we fall down Jesus does the thing that we really really need right what does he do he puts us on his back and he carries us up the hill (laughs) see many of us think sanctification and we think man I'm going to really trudge up there I'm going to be a you know a marathon runner a navy seal for Jesus most of the time we're like you know quadriplegics for Jesus he just carries us up right that's for real (laughs) we can't do anything like Mephibosheth of the old testament that's us So I wanna close with this thought. We are constantly in need of a reminder that the gospel is for us regularly. We regularly need to abandon our own belief that we can do this by ourselves, that we can save ourselves. These two gates and ways that Jesus puts before us, they are not just put before us at summer camp when we're teenagers, they're put before us every single morning. Every morning we wake up with the two gates, the narrow and the wide, the the two ways, the difficult and the easy. And Jesus invites us. I love that what he says here is he says, enter into the narrow gate. Can you hear the words of Christ here? Don't think like, you know, high school varsity football coach. Think loving, caring father, right? Enter into the narrow gate. Come into the narrow gate. Every morning he's whispering that to us, inviting us into it. He says, come and lay down the weight of self-salvation at my feet and take up my burden and my yoke. It is light. He says, come and receive the gift of imputed righteousness, which is in me alone. Abandon your project of self-salvation. Come into the light. Come and rest in union with peace with God through the gift that Christ is offering in the gospel. Enter into the narrow gate because it's through this news alone that we're empowered to live a life that loves others the way that Jesus loves them. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give two encouragements this morning. If you're under the sound of my voice, I want to encourage you, if you feel the weight of failure, sin, darkness, condemnation, walk into the light with Jesus where you can be healed. Come to him. Don't run away from him. The invitation is toward him, not away. And I want to encourage you in that. Secondarily, if you're a believer, maybe as you take communion, I want you to be reminded of Christ already fulfilling the golden rule for you as you take of the juice and of the bread. And as you sit down and worship, consider who it is that God is bringing into your mind that you might love them proactively, inclusively, because Christ has done that for you. Amen? Ask yourself that question. Well, far be it from us to walk out of here and say, hmm, good truth, but we don't actually do anything with that. And if you're not sure you're a believer or whatever, I want to encourage you with this. Don't walk out of here trying to apply that first before you first are experiencing and trusting in the love that God has for you. Because you'll be like my son with fingers at the porch. <laughs> right? And I don't want that for you. So if you'll stand to your feet, I want to pray for us. Father, first I just want to confess to you, I often am like my son, not taking the broom and trying to sweep up a porch. God, I I am often trying to apply the commands of your word without experiencing and trusting in the love that you've given. Forgive me, God, when I try to retake up my self-salvation project. Holy Spirit, would you now come and would you relieve us from our striving? Would you relieve us from us trying to define our lives autonomously? Relieve us, God. May we hear your invitation enter into the narrow gate, enter into the narrow gate. Not like a P.E. coach angry but from the loving Father that you are my God, would you speak clearly and would you speak lovingly? Would you speak to our hearts in a way that is effectual? And as we take of your table, would you remind us not only of the gospel, but of the people in our lives that we're called to demonstrate the gospel to? We love and trust you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.